to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Well, having looked at Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the Messiah, the judge, and even as God in the flesh, we started uh, at the end of last week to look at Jesus as the ultimate servant, the one who put others first, who gave up his glory to live and die and rise for us. The Bible is clear that God is not just powerful and holy and majestic. In Jesus, he is humble. He's a servant. It's an amazing idea. The night before his death on a cross, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus foreshadowed this servant theme in a really shocking way. He did for his disciples what in the ancient world only a household slave would do. Let me read to you from John chapter 13, verse 3, an amazing passage. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I've often heard preachers challenge their audiences with lines like, Imagine if God Almighty appeared before you right now in all his glory. The implication is that we'd all feel pretty humbled. That's true enough, I guess, but I reckon more humbling by far would be the experience of these first disciples. Imagine observing the one you revered as the epitome of greatness, taking off his robe, tying a towel around his waist, and doing for you what you had only ever seen a slave do for his master. Without gimmick or guile, he washes and dries your feet. In the context of John's Gospel, Jesus washing the disciples' feet was intended in part as a picture of the humble service he would perform the following day as he suffered and died for our salvation. But it wasn't merely a picture or theological illustration. The washing of the disciples' feet was intended as a potent example of the Christian life itself. Jesus said to his stunned disciples, I have set you an example. Or to quote the passage from Mark's Gospel I talked about on Friday night, Whoever wants to become great among you, Jesus said, must be your servant. Christian life, as well as Christian theology, is premised on and characterized by the servanthood Jesus himself showed. The hymn from Philippians 2 I talked about on Friday night makes exactly the same point. The Apostle Paul didn't include this passage just so that we would sing about the Lord who became a slave. He included it because he wanted us to embody that mystery in our daily lives. The apostle introduces this hymn in the words, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And so the hymn begins, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's Philippians 2 verse 3. Christology, the study of the person of Jesus, is intimately connected with Christian living. Knowing Christ will result in living Christianly. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, the servant. It's as simple and as difficult as that. Now, at various points throughout this series on Jesus' life, I've mentioned the incredible expansion of Christianity in its first few centuries. What started as a small group of Palestinian Jews soon became the single largest social movement in the whole empire, winning people over by the irresistible power of compassion and humility and love. The crowning symbol of this Christian expansion was the conversion of the emperor himself, Constantine the Great, uh, in the fourth century. Somehow, The empire established by brute force was conquered by the message of the servant Lord. But sadly, there's another story that could be told about the Christendom that emerged in the 4th century and beyond. See, the faith that had won the world through service and suffering was now, after Constantine, the beneficiary of power and privilege. With the Christianization of the emperors, Christian morality began to be written into law and so was thrust on unbelievers. Bishops began to be elevated to the status of princes, and for a time they even became civic judges. Church and state were now intertwined. By the 4th and 5th centuries, churches had acquired land and wealth way beyond their needs, and those who opposed Christ's cause found themselves excluded, silenced, and sometimes worse. Now the church grew not through the inexplicable power of words and deeds, but by the all-too-familiar means of warfare and treaty. Imperialism became the handmaiden of Christian mission as an earthly Christendom became synonymous with God's kingdom. In the twinkling of an eye, it seems, the people of the servant king assumed a throne of their own. It was by no means all bad, and at least for the first couple of centuries, it was mostly very good. But for me, the church of the fourth century and beyond provides ample proof that when Christians wield secular power for the cause of Christ, they frequently cease to be recognisably Christian. Because the only power Jesus ever granted his followers was the power to persuade the world through word and service. Let me briefly try and summarise all of the portraits of Jesus we've looked at in this six-week stroll through the life of Christ. In particular, let me offer a picture of what following this incredible man will look like. Belonging to the movement Jesus inspired begins with careful reflection on the many and varied portraits of him found in the earliest source, the texts of the New Testament. More than that, it involves allowing these images of Christ to have their intended effect on us. Following Jesus then means learning and applying the wisdom of the teacher. It means alleviating suffering in the name of the healer. 
And it means trying to live out our imperfect lives within the larger perfect life of the true Israel, Jesus himself. To be a Christian is also to bear the name and the shame of the Christ and to revere him as the judge of all injustice, including the injustice inside my own heart. At the same time, it's to adore him as the friend of sinners, as the temple of divine presence, and as the saviour who died for us all. And so long as these portraits are held in careful balance, true believers are never going to be smug in their righteousness or burdened by a sense of their unworthiness. As the risen one, Jesus is a kind of Adam figure. He's the progenitor of a new humanity and the guarantor of my own resurrection in God's revived creation. And it's with this hope that I can sit loosely to the claims of my culture, knowing that all earthly empires pass into oblivion, while the kingdom of the true Caesar, Jesus, reigns eternal. And last of all, knowing Jesus involves embracing a scandalous paradox. The one in whose face we see God declared himself at the same time to be the servant of us all. No belief is more counterintuitive or revolutionary, because if this is true, it means that at the heart of the universe is one who values humility above status, service above power, and generosity above privilege. And if I truly believe this, nothing will ever be the same. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.